Good morning. I am so excited to share with you about this psalm. Uh, it is uh, one of my favorites, and uh, it is exciting to be able to be able to speak to you this morning. Another thing that I'm excited about, actually, about our church is membership. And uh, if you didn't hear that earlier, I want to reiterate the fact that we got the membership class going on today. It's on uh, page 14 of your bulletin. If you haven't seen that, it doesn't obligate you to become a member of our church, and it doesn't guarantee that you'll become a member of our church either if you go. But it is a great way for you to get to know what is the church, what's the church about, and uh, it's all going to happen in one day. So this is a new format. We haven't done this before, and uh, we're excited about the opportunities that it, it, it offers to us. So it's going to be from 2 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night uh, at the Lay Meridium uh, ballroom, or, uh, the training room, excuse me. So uh, the map is on page 15. So take a look at that. If you can join us uh, there, it would be wonderful. Well, recently, the elders and the staff of Redeemer Church of Dubai and several of our partner churches around the UAE uh, gathered together for a preaching training seminar called Simeon Trust. Uh, where Jeremy Rennie, if you remember, he preached a few weeks ago just after that, and Max Stiles led us through 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel uh, is a wonderful book. I, I actually I, I love the stories. Uh, there's Samuel and Eli. There's uh, David and Jonathan. David arising up from, from uh, being a shepherd boy to the king of Israel. Uh, Saul and Jonathan. You know, but as we dug into it, I didn't realize what a depressing book that First Samuel can actually be. I, I've always thought of it as, you know, going out there and conquering giants. But, but actually, the bulk of the book is uh, devoted to men who hear the word of God, but don't listen. They do their own thing. And in the end, they're, they're, they're perishing. For example, Eli's sons are the priests of God, and yet they take that position and they abuse it for their own means. Or Saul himself, Saul really messed up quite a bit. He ignores, or he figures, excuse me, that he can do most of what God says, but not all of it. He even adds in things like religious activities, like making sacrifices to God on his own behalf. But he falls very short of doing all that God commanded. And in the end, he's actually told that God is his enemy. These are a couple examples, but each one who doesn't listen ends in death. Now, true, uh, some of these who, who actually do what God says in 1 Samuel, they end in death too, but their death is honorable. While those who fail to listen to God die in shame, in misery, and dishonor. They leave the story empty, without hope, and without God. Now, I'm actually reading 2 Samuel in my quiet times. And I have to tell you, the book, uh, I see a much brighter future as I'm going through 2 Samuel. David is rising in his kingship. Uh, God has established a permanent covenant with David that actually leads to Jesus and the Messiah. Sure, David messes up quite a bit too in 2 Samuel. I mean, he, he, uh, he covets another man's wife. He actually steals that woman from him. He commits adultery with her. He lies about it. And then in the end, he ends up murdering this man. And it's not just any man. This is one of his mighty men of valor. The 30 mighty men listed at the end of that book. But David, in the end, is not called God's enemy. Actually, he's called the friend of God. So how can it be that two guys, one actually doing religious things and the other outright sinning, how can they meet such different ends? The answer is also the title of our sermon. It's how they respond 
to God's word, how they respond to the word of the Lord. Now, Christians get their understanding about who God is and what he requires of man from the Bible. The Bible is different than some other religious books. It's actually been written over 1,500 years. There are 42 or 43 different authors uh, included in the books of the Bible. Yet there is one story. One story. It's the source of God's revelation to mankind. And so reading the Bible, therefore, understanding it rightly is of utmost importance. Some, however, come to the Word of God. With their, they want it to fit their own desires, like Saul. Like Saul wanted to fit God's revelation to his own desires. We must be careful to read the Bible for what it says and not for what we want it to say. Our text today that Alyssa read for us is Psalm 1. It's a very well-known psalm. Many people have memorized this psalm. In fact, I was really encouraged to hear that some of you have actually memorized the psalm for today, just to, just to meditate on it yourself. That's so encouraging. Many have meditated long on this psalm. So I don't want to pretend that I have anything new necessarily to bring you But I do want to come to you. I want to bring you through perhaps a different perspective. Many have interpreted this psalm through moralistic lenses. Understanding the psalm from that perspective of bad company corrupting good morals. An example would be the prosperity teachers or moralistic legalists who use this psalm to fit their teachings Their main point might be something like this. Be good, and you will be blessed on the earth, and somehow make it through the judgment. That might be something that they would say. But we must see this psalm, Psalm 1, through the lens of the whole counsel of God's Word. Ultimately, I want us to see this psalm through the lens of the gospel. Seen from this perspective... The emphasis is not on the physical actions of a man or even a man's character, but rather the Psalm 1 is about contrasting reactions to the Word of God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you're taking notes, this is the the outline of the sermon. One, how the wicked and the righteous are moved by God's Word. How the wicked and the righteous are moved by the Word of God. Secondly, how can one be the righteous man? How can one be the righteous man? And thirdly, how can one respond rightly to God's Word? How the wicked and the righteous are moved by God's Word, how can one be the righteous man, and how can one respond rightly to God's Word? So we'll start with how the wicked and the righteous are moved by God's word. The big contrast, overarching contrast through Psalm 1 is the righteous man versus the wicked man. Most of the contrast that we can see between these two are actually surrounding movement, motion. So in summary, we'll we'll look at uh, this in summary first, and then I'll actually go through each couplet of verses, and we'll see how this is displayed. So... Let's consider first how the wicked man moves in response to God's word. The wicked man, being that overarching contrast, we see him appear in verse 1, in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 6. He is there often through here. And consider his movements. He's sitting, he's standing, he's walking. He's being blown in the wind. And then he... He cannot stand, and he cannot congregate with the righteous. He is ever moving towards his end, and that end is perishing under the wisdom and the wrath of God. The righteous man, on the other hand, is not participating in those actions of sitting, standing, or walking, and he is uh, he's likened to a tree that's planted 
firm in one place near streams of water. In verse 5, it's implied through contrast that he does stand in the judgment. And he can stand through the judgment. He can make it through. The wicked man's not going to make it through. Yes, he'll be there, but he won't make it through. The righteous man will make it through, and he will congregate with the righteous. His way is known by the Lord, and it is also implied by contrast that his way is approved by God. So what does all this movement mean? Well, the way I've heard this psalm before, and maybe this is how you've heard it before, is something like this. Be careful about the company that you keep. You know, don't walk with those wicked people. Before long, you won't be walking any longer with the wicked. You'll be, you'll be standing with the sinners. And, and it won't take long before you end up sitting with the scoffers. And the end of that is lying in your grave. So that's how I've typically heard the psalm preached. Well, one of the most basic Bible study tools that we can employ is looking for repetition. And if repetition of the wicked man holds any weight on the interpretation of this psalm, then the worst thing in that progression of verse 1 is not sitting with scoffers. It's walking with the wicked. So, looking at verses 1 and 2 in detail, we have what we, what we see here, a spiraling down effect that Paul, or excuse me, that, that the psalmist is trying to show us to the core of the wickedness that's there. The wicked man had a wicked start, you see. The psalmist brings us down to the root of his issue, and there he is called a scoffer. Now, to scoff means to speak down on, to mock, or to utterly disregard There is a reason the psalmist puts the wicked man's uh, response to the word of God right next to the righteous man's delight and meditation in God's law. The immediacy of that contrast highlights their responses to the word of God. So we'll look first at the scoffing of the scoffer and where that leads. Scoffing at the word of God is as old as the serpent himself. Remember there in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, where Satan says to Eve, Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any of the trees of the garden? And he continues on in that dialogue when he retorts, You will not surely die. Do you hear the scoffing of the scoffer? He scoffs at the word of God. He questions God's word. He mocks God's word. And ultimately, he's directly opposing the word of God. We hear scoffers today. No doubt you, like me, you you hear it in your classrooms or in your workplace. Oh, the Bible is just an old bunch of myths and stories and moralistic teachings. Scoffing. Just last week, I was challenging one of the guys that I play ultimate with He was making rude and lust-filled comments about women on the beach. uh, I told him, I I only have eyes for one woman, my wife. Uh, At that, he said, oh, come on, man, it's just a look. It's not that bad. And I told him, I said, well, Jesus said it is that bad, actually. Jesus said that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her. His response, oh, you can't take everything the Bible says so literally. God, God made us to enjoy his creation. And so taking a look here or there, you're actually honoring God when you do that. You know he's wrong, right? <laughs> he's wrong. Those who pick and choose what portions of the Bible apply to them and what portions don't apply to them, they are scoffing at the word of God. Now, scoffers do what scoffers do. It's, their, it's in their nature. It's, it's this type of response to God's word that, that doesn't stay still. It's, it's in motion. 
It's in motion. It moves, for instance, from a thought while sitting far away to a standing consideration and then an active walking out in wickedness. That far look across the beach becomes a phone call. That phone call leads to fleeting pleasures and moral failure. I can, I can hear echoes of James' letter in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where he says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death, or brings forth death. The contrast is the righteous man's delighting in the law of the Lord. So what does it mean to delight in the law. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, wondered how could anyone delight in the law? I mean, respect it perhaps, admire it or accept it as wise, sure, but to love it? To find it exciting and a source of satisfaction? Hardly. Yet Lewis came to this conclusion, their delight in the law is a delight at having touched firmness. It's it's like the, the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after false shortcuts have long entangled him in muddy fields. The law is good because firmness is good. This image that Lewis brings up reminds me of a hiking and canoeing trip that I took in the Everglades when I was in university. We were hiking uh, for uh, two days across the glades with all manner of bugs and vermin. Uh, We had three-meter-long snakes and some alligators that were twice that long. Uh, But almost one entire day, we were hiking up to our knees in water and sometimes up to our waist. You can imagine the shouts of joy when we finally got to the road. In fact, Dan actually bent down and kissed the ground. He was so excited to actually be on firm soil. So, so what does it take? What does it take? Or what does it mean to take delight in the law of God? Well, to take delight in something is to receive from it a high degree of satisfaction, gratification, or joy. It's something that gives great pleasure. We are creatures of pleasure. That's by God's design. We seek after those things that bring satisfaction or gratification. The psalmist does not deny this fact, but rather positions God's word, God's law, as the source of man's greatest satisfaction. So, where do you look? For a high degree of satisfaction. What comes to your mind when you think of that which brings you great pleasure? Is it the Word of God? Oh, how I long for nothing else to even compare with God's revelation to be my source of satisfaction. But if we're honest, we'll agree that, they, that we find satisfaction in many other things. Now, some of them are not all bad. For instance, we take great delight in the birth of a child. Or we're gratified by the loving embrace of a spouse or a parent. And we're satisfied with a well-made mutton pashauri or chicken adobo. These are all good in their right place and the right portion. Yet they can easily become idols if we allow them in our hearts to take precedence over God. And if we're really honest, we'll confess that we don't delight in God's Word much at all. Not like the psalmist describes. In fact, we even subtly, quietly scoff at God's word in our hearts. Sometimes, without even noticing it, our couched scoffing turns to wicked walking. Our couched scoffing turns to wicked walking. Do you act as if some of the Bible's instructions don't actually apply to you? 
Do you make excuses for or justify your sin? Now, there are so many ways that we excuse our sin. And there are so many sins that we could use to illustrate this point, but I'm going to pick just one sin in application that tends to get overlooked, excused, or justified. It's one of those that brings dangerous satisfaction to our hearts while it eats away at our soul in our community. And that is gossip. The typical excuse? It's not gossip when we're sharing prayer requests, right? But don't get me wrong. We, we need to be praying for one another, and, and we, need, we need to be discerning with how we share with others in order to resist gossip. Gossip kills unity in the body. And it maligns the culture of discipleship that we're, we're seeking to and we're longing for here at Redeemer. Matt Mitchell wrote a book recently, a couple years ago, called Resisting Gossip. And he points out a few ways that we can check our hearts, check our tongues, uh, before we, we, we get into gossip. He encourages us to do four things. One is to check the facts. Is it true? Consider your source. Where are you hearing these things? Is it true? Check the facts. Secondly, check your role. Are, are you the right person to be passing this information along? How would that person feel about this information being shared? Or being shared by you. Thirdly is check your audience. Do the people that you're sharing this information with, do they struggle with gossip? It may be perfectly right to to share this information uh, to one person, but completely wrong to pass it to another. And then fourthly, and probably most importantly, is check your heart. What's your motivation? Be honest. Do you want to be seen as the one with the inside story and the scoop on the thing? Sinful gossip is sharing bad news behind the back of somebody else with a bad heart. What's your motivation? One way to check your motivation on that as well is, do you really pray for the things that are shared? Or that God would be glorified or that the other person would be helped? Or is passing the information as far as it actually goes. But look, the point of this is we need to see that contrast in verses 1 and 2 that we don't delight in God's Word even remotely close to what the righteous man does. We're not meditating on it day and night. We are the scoffer. We're the wicked man. We're the sinner. We justify our sin despite knowing what God's Word says. And we downplay portions of the Word We outright make a mockery of it at times, and therefore we mock God. The psalmist then continues in verses 3 and 4 with this idea of the moving wicked man and the steady righteous man. He uses an illustration there on both sides. The righteous man compared to a tree, while the wicked man is compared to chaff blowing in the wind. A planted tree doesn't move much, okay? It, it does move. It sinks its roots in deep uh, so that it can find more of that rich, life-giving nourishment, which then causes the tree to grow and to produce fruit. And so it's, it is moving, but it's in one place. The chaff, chaff are, are, are husks. Uh, they're, they're the, when the person threshes grain, it's that part that breaks off and the, the good kernel of, of grain comes out and what's left is, is the chaff. Now what the, the thresher will do after he breaks that up, he'll gather it together in a basket and, and in the old days they would throw that thing up in the, in the wind and the wind would drive away the chaff while the, the heavier grain would fall back into his basket. The chaff is dry dead and empty. It has no life in it, and it's good for nothing except to be thrown into the fire. This is the person 
that has no time for God. They're always looking for another way, another means. They're, the person who's like that chaff blowing in the wind, they're always in motion. And they never seem to have time to, to pray. How's your prayer life? Now, there are many reasons why we, we, we fail to pray. I, I, I know, it, you know sometimes we're just so busy. You know, there's, there's school, there's, there's work, there's kids, there's so many things. But sometimes, sometimes it's because we're seeking other things rather than God. People are trying doctors or herbal solutions or earning more money or calling up their family for help or assistance all the way down to the third cousin. I don't even know my cousins. Uh, they, they trust in politicians or, or bankers but they don't seek God. They're the ones who are often heard saying, when all else fails, pray. They're just dry, dead, empty. No life, just empty shells. Friend, why why would you try anything else before going to the source of life? The healer of diseases, the righter of wrongs, the the binder of broken hearts, the one who provides for his children and gives them everything they need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Don't chase after the wind. Seek for God. Well, continuing on in verses 5 and 6, it is in some way a mirror of verses 1 and 2 with a similar structure, but focusing rather on the wicked man than the righteous man. Here again, we see motion as a theme in which the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor congregate with the righteous. And then that final verse in our psalm contrasts the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked leading to death And we get a a picture in these verses of every man's end. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Friend, death is the one sure thing in life. It is the ultimate statistic. One out of one die. It will happen, and we need to be prepared. Every religion, in fact, even every uh, non-religious social system is trying to make sense of that event, that life event. Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25 both say, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So many paths have been tried by the sons of Adam, and they all lead to the same place, And it's exactly what God told Adam. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The Bible is very clear on this. The wages of sin, that that which we have earned because of our labors in this world, the wages of sin is death. But also in this final verse, it says, The Lord knows The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Why? Why does the Lord know the way of the righteous? It's because it's His way. It's His way. In the gospel according to John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so John continues to explain the gospel and judgment when he says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light, that is Jesus, has come into the world. But people love the darkness, that is they love their sin because their deeds, their works were evil. It's time to examine your way. What's your path? What path are you on? Are you on the way of your own design. Friend, it will fail. Now, you can be here and, and, and you haven't known Jesus. You haven't understood Him. Why chase after things that, that, that won't bring satisfaction? You may be here as a believer and yet you're on a path that would lead somewhere else. 
Are you, are you moving from one thing to another, trying this system or, or that religion, trying to come up with some cocktail of religion that somehow works for you? Are, are you, like the world, striving here and there, moving from, from one thing to another, one relationship to another, to find your source of satisfaction? In the end, all this striving is the same. We will face death and judgment. And what will we be able to say before a completely holy, 100% sinless God? Oh, friend, the way of the wicked will perish, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Why does the Lord know this way so well? Because he is the only one who has ever lived the righteous man's life. Which is a spoiler for our second point. How can one be the righteous man? One can't be the righteous man because only Jesus is the righteous man. When we read the psalm with this thought that Jesus is the righteous man, it changes everything in the way that we understand and apply this psalm. Contrary to how the psalm is typically understood, we cannot start with the idea that we are, we are good. Somehow we are the good guy in this. That, that we are, or even that we are morally neutral coming to this psalm. The typical assumption is that we come to the psalm, even perhaps as those redeemed by God, and, and we're, we're set with a moral obligation to either follow the wicked man's path or follow the righteous man's way. But we must understand that we cannot come to Psalm 1 as morally neutral, ever. We cannot because the whole counsel of God tells us otherwise and that will not allow us to do that. There are so many passages of Scripture to elaborate this point, but Romans 3, 10 to 12 is so clear. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one is good, not even one. Friend, we are not the righteous man. We are the wicked, we are the sinner, we are the scoffer. We are blowing in the wind of dissatisfaction, empty lust, envies, strives, and contentions. We have have we, have we delighted in God's law above all other things, day and night, every day, every night? Are we without sin and totally righteous? No. No. In Hebrews, we are told that there is one, one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that person the only one who is perfectly delighted in God's revelation is Jesus. Only Jesus is the blessed one. Only Jesus can stand in the judgment of God. Therefore, only Jesus, by his own merit, is able to stand in the congregation of the righteous in verse 5. Now, this would be very bad news for sinners like myself, like you. But there's hope, you see. There's hope. There is good news after all. Because as we heard preached just two weeks ago by Dave, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at its proper time. Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the Word become flesh and dwelling among us. And in the flesh, He made a way for sinners like us to meet the righteous requirement of the law and be reconciled with a holy God through His perfect substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Now, I want you to turn to Romans 3 in your Bible or on your tablet because uh, it's so critical for you to understand this. I, so I want you to see it. I want you to see it in the Bible for yourself. Romans is that New Testament book just after the gospel books. 
and after Acts. Paul's first of his letters in in the Bible. And there in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 to 25. It says, for by works of the law, and we've been talking about the law, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, righteousness of God, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. For those who receive him, By faith, he will justify by grace as a gift. He redeems in Christ those who believe. That means he purchases them back to himself. And that purchase price, as we see here in verse 25, is this propitiation made by his blood. So Jesus takes all the sin and shame of those who will place their faith in Him. He takes it into Himself so that when He dies on the cross, all our sin and shame die with Him. And then He does something earth-shattering. He proves the effectiveness of this transaction by rising himself from the grave. He rose again like we just celebrated at Easter. Friend, sin and death are conquered in Christ Jesus. And not only that, not only that, but he imputes to us, he he puts into us His righteousness, God's righteousness for those who believe. So if we are to be reconciled with God, think about this. If we are to be justified with God, we we must attain to his sinless standard, his perfection. But I can't do that. Verse 20 says, no work, no law abiding will justify us in his sight. Rather, God gives to us as a gift His righteousness through the same faith in Jesus. So now, through faith in Christ, our wickedness with, 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 is dealt with and it's paid in full. And in Christ, we are made truly righteous. In Christ, in Christ, we may actually delight in the Word of God. In Christ, we have been, for those who have placed themselves in Christ, we have been blessed and we will be blessed as verse 1 in Psalms 1 talks about. So now, we fix our eyes on that Word on the Word of God made flesh and set our hope on Him. Consider then Jesus. Think on Jesus. Meditate on Him. Listen, if you've never believed in and entrusted yourself, your life to Jesus, now, if you're wondering what I even mean by that, then most likely you haven't done that. Okay? So if you have never believed in or entrusted yourself to Jesus, then let me encourage you to consider Him now. He loved you enough to bring you here today, to hear this message, to hear this good news. It's no accident that you're here right now, and you need to hear this message because you have been like chaff, blown about by the wind. 
finding nothing to satisfy your soul. Listen, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your soul. Turn from your scoffing at God's word and believe it. It's God revealing himself, and it's true. Turn from your walking away from God in your heart and receive his loving embrace. He will have you. If only you will turn and believe. And you can do that right now, right where you sit, in the quietness of your own soul. Call out to God for mercy. You don't deserve it. And you cannot earn it. None of us can. That's why it's called a gift. That's why he gives it freely to anyone who will take it. Now, if that's you... Do your business with God right now. I, and, but I, let me talk for a moment to the Christians here. Uh, Christian, it's so easy for us to step back into those legalistic and moralistic frameworks, those modes of living. But that's not gospel living. That's the, that's the whole point I've been driving towards, is to get us to gospel living, not moralism. If you are in Christ then let the words of Isaiah 61.3 give you encouragement. For you are called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. He has planted you strong like an oak, like that tree in verse 3, planted by streams of living water, in fact. O Christian, Suck in right now the rich, life-giving nourishment that He provides through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. Are you prone? Are you prone to demanding action from others and while seeking grace for yourself? Or do you find that you're struggling with the same sin over and over and over again? Are you seeking out methods or programs or or anything that can kick that habit, these are all indications you've turned away from gospel living in those areas. Listen, John, Jesus says in John 15, 3 through 5, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't come to Jesus, get kind of settled and cleaned up, and then then, then it's all up to you now. That's not how this Christian thing works. Let us not look to the counsels of the wicked any longer. Let us look to Jesus. If you're feeling tempted by sin, look to Jesus. Set your gaze to Him. When you, when you feel the tendency to, to, to go back into a mode of legalism, no, don't live in the gospel of Jesus. When you struggle against persecution or oppression, look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so much from sinners, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our hope, our life, our blessing is in Jesus. So come to him. And now we come to our final point then. How can one respond rightly to God's word? To respond rightly is to delight in, to meditate 
on Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures. To do this, one must know the word. It, now, it's, it's hard to meditate on the word, uh, to sink yourself deep into the thoughts of God if you, like chaff, are in constant motion. Right? So we need a time to get away. We need a place to, a solitary place to park ourselves to listen to God's word. Now, we typically call that a quiet time. A quiet time could consist of 15 minutes to several hours. It, it really is not the time that's important, it's your attention. Where's your attention? I have a, a certain chair in my living area that I like to sit in. I've, I found that with my, my coffee, I have a big coffee, uh, in the morning is the best time for me to be able to focus my attention on the Word of God. Pick a book of the Bible and read it, portion by portion. Uh, you know, perhaps a few chapters at a time uh, would be good. Some people, some people use little devotional booklets uh, to assist them, but... You know what, I, I want to encourage you, I want to recommend to you just the plain word of God. Let it be your delight rather than the words of a man. Now those things can be helpful, but, but our delight should be in the word itself. Now, a quiet time is a little bit like conversation. You know, when you, when you have a conversation, you... It, it's dialogue back and forth. And that's, that's what it is. You're, you're talking with the creator of the universe. He, you, you get his words in that conversation through the scripture. And, and prayer is your ability to come back to God in the conversation. So you never find uh, in, a, in a conversation, you know, just one person, blah, 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 blah. And then that ends. And the other person, blah, 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 blah. That, that's not a conversation. So dialogue with God in his word. Let, let it be rich, active, vibrant. Come to him with questions. Oh God, what did you mean by that? You know, let him speak to you into the very issues of your life through his word. Let me encourage you also to read all of the Bible. There are lots of plans available on your tablets or your computer that can, can help you read through the whole Bible in a year or two. Now, that may seem daunting to some, uh, so maybe start with the New Testament. If you haven't read the whole Bible, or if you haven't read the whole New Testament, then you really need to do so. And I have here, uh, available for us back on the resource table, one such plan. This one's for the New Testament. It's organized by author, and it really just has a little checkbox here, so you don't have to follow it from, from start to finish. You can skip around in it. it Look, the important thing is, get to know God through his word. These are available if you want them. But don't just read the Bible. As, as we were instructed in, in our psalm, meditate on it. There's, a, there's an old illustration about a hand that, uh, that my daughter and her husband uh, are using now in their, in their ministry in Florida, but it's... It's, it's very simple. You, you hear the word, you can read the word, you can study the word, and you can memorize the word. But the, the most important thing for us in getting a firm grasp on the word of God is meditating on the word. So no matter if you're hearing it, reading it, studying it, or memorizing it, meditate on the word of God to get a firm grip on the word. It is through this that, that you get to know God much deeper. And you can do it anytime, anywhere. Meditating on God's Word is just thinking deeply about what God says. There's an article in, in our, our bulletin that also talks about this on page 11. Uh, it starts there. I want to commend that to you, recommend that to you. It is a great article. One's response to the Word of God is an indication of our heart. Are you scoffing at the Word? Are you taking portions of it but not portions of it? Are you delighting in the Word of God? Remember Saul and David as we started? They were similar on so many levels. Each was anointed king of Israel. Each was a leader. Each had families. Each loved people. Each enjoyed food. Each was valiant on the 
on the battlefield. Each of them led spiritually. Each of them heard from God. Each of them sinned against God. But Saul, in the end of his days, was called God's enemy. He died by suicide. His body was ripped apart and posted up on the walls of the cities of his enemies in mockery and shame against Israel and against God. David, however, was called friend of God. He died in honor and he received an everlasting covenant from God, which ultimately led to the Messiah whose kingdom, because he rose again, because that Messiah rose from the dead, that kingdom is eternal. What made the difference for these men? It was how they responded to the word of God. Saul came with his excuses and his denials, whereas David came with humility and repentance. So how will you respond today? To the Word of God. I pray that it is in that same spirit of humility and repentance that we see in David. To that end, let's pray. O oh God, your law shows us your holiness and justice. Your gospel shows us how justice and mercy meet through grace on the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray that all gathered here would turn away from the counsels of the wicked. I pray that we would not trust in religion, but rather that we will trust in Christ, the Word of God made flesh, the only means of our salvation. May we not be like those who hardened their hearts before you and died in their wickedness. Rather, May we be like those who hear the word, receive it, and allow it to grow 100-fold in health and fruitfulness in Christ. Jesus, you are the firm foundation on which we can stand in the congregation of the righteous. You have promised to be with us no matter what life brings, and you will never leave us nor forsake us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.